please grab a pair of headphones if you can, and that way you'll get the full immersive audio experience. Okay, let's get started. It's April of 1888. Andrew Delglish's horse is struggling on the Karakoram Pass. The ground is covered in snow and stone. Skeletons of horses litter the road. At more than 18,000 feet, this is the highest mountain pass on an ancient caravan route from India to China. Delgrish decides to take a break. He pitches a tent and then joins his men in their tent for tea and bread. The conversation turns to the affairs of one of the men, Dad Muhammad, a Pathan from Quetta. His reputation as a murderer precedes him. Muhammad is over six feet tall and powerfully built, and he's bankrupt and desperate. Delgrish begins to advise Muhammad. You should live within your means, quietly. Restrain your love of hospitality. The tent goes quiet. The Pathan says, We have a saying that no man ever ruined himself by kindness to others. Dalglish doesn't notice the mood. Kindness is good, but within means. Saad Muhammad rises. I will be back directly. He leaves the tent, grabs his gun, and fires at Dalgrish from outside. Dalgrish staggers out of the tent, clutching his injured shoulder. But Muhammad isn't done. With a sword, he hacks at Dalgrish. More than a year after the murder, Muhammad is on the run. A British lieutenant, Hamilton Bauer, has been ordered to find him. Bauer begins in Srinagar and for months travels the northern lands. In February 1890, he reaches the city of Kuchar in China, the site of an ancient Buddhist kingdom. It's an oasis on the northern branch of the Silk Road. The snowy peaks of the Tian Shan Mountains frame the city. Here, a local man tells him about an ancient city nearby built underground in the desert. He says, I dug at that site for buried treasure, but I found nothing except a book. Show me the book, Bauer says. The man goes away and returns in an hour. He carries sheets of birch bark covered in ancient Sanskrit lettering. It is held together by two wooden boards and string. Bauer buys the book and then asks the man to take him to that underground city. The man says, no, he can't take a European there. People will kill him. Bauer persists and the man agrees. But only if they leave under the cover of darkness at midnight. As the sun rises, the men reach the ruins of the city. It is on the shoulders of a range of gravelly hills. A 50-foot-high stupa rises out of the ground. Its sun-dried bricks and wooden beams are crumbling. It is desolate. Time has left this spot behind. So what was written on that birch bark? Recipes. 
recipes, really. Yeah, they're recipes for medicines. They were written sometime between the 4th to 6th centuries by a Buddhist monk. His name is Yashomitra. He wrote down the treatments and plant-based recipes, and then he punched a hole through the birch bark leaves and threaded them together to form sort of a small pocketbook. It has about 50 leaves. Wow. Do you want to hear a recipe? Yes. Okay, here's one to improve your memory and intelligence. Mix one palla each of ginger, vacha, sigru, shibulik, myrobalan, long pepper, black pepper, pat, and rock salt. Boil the mixture in one prasta of ghee together with four times that amount of goat milk. I think I can make this. I just need to figure out some of those ingredients. Like, um, was that chibulik something? And, um, and is a pal, is that like a teaspoon? A pal is about 40 grams. So more than half of Yashamitra's book has recipes just like this. It's based on Ayurveda, a form of traditional Indian medicine, which goes back more than 2,000 years. Where is this pocketbook now? It's kept at Oxford University. It's named after Bauer, and it's called the Bauer Manuscript. Ah, not Yashumitra's manuscript, eh? <laughs> no. <laughs> and Mohammed, what happens to him? Did Bauer ever catch the killer? You know what? He doesn't. Bauer's in the wrong place. Mohammed is hundreds of miles away, all the way to the west, in Samarkand. He's spotted in the bazaar there, and then he's arrested, and then he dies by suicide in prison. <gasps> Welcome to Scrolls and Leaves, a world history podcast featuring stories from the margins. We're in season one, Trade Winds, set in the Indian Ocean world. I'm Mary Rose Abraham. And I'm Gayatri Vaidinathan. We have a small request. We are nearing the end of season one, and in the future, we want to tell stories that you are interested in. So could you please help us out by filling in a short survey? Let me tell you how to find it. Do you have your phone on you? I have mine here as well. So I'm going to go to the browser and type in scrollsandleaves.com and see the survey button right on top of the website. Well, click on it and that's it. And if you could help us out a bit more, send this link to our survey to your friends on WhatsApp or email. They don't have to be listeners of Scrolls and Leaves. We just want to get as many responses as possible. And at the end, you could claim a small prize. Thank you so much. Okay, let's imagine we are in a garden, and we are surrounded by plants. Marigold, turmeric, neem, pigeon wings. Some of them have magical properties. Magical? <laughs> okay, I mean healing. There are over 7,000 medicinal plants in India. Stems, roots, fruits, bark, seeds. They make up millions of recipes, just like the one in the Yashomitra manuscript. We know plants are healers, of course, but they're also so much more. They have shaped our history. Just a few centuries ago, they drove exploration, started wars, transformed entire economies. Today, they are the bedrock of Big Pharma. This is episode six, Healing Plants. Chapter one, Plants as Healers. Let's go back 4,500 years. Egyptians are building their pyramids, and on the Indian subcontinent, a civilization thrives on the banks of the Indus River and trades with kingdoms thousands of miles away. People from the Indus Valley civilization sail west to Mesopotamia, or they walk east to China, carrying their knowledge of herbal cures. 
Do we have any clues about which plants or trees they're using? Actually, we do. It's pretty amazing. Archaeologists have dug up a few of these sites, and they found clay pots containing medicinal herbs. And one of the most common ones they found is from neem. That's a tree that belongs to the mahogany family. Neem is still used today in India. Its leaves taste so bitter. It's the kind of bitter that an Indian grandmother might say would wash the worms out of your stomach. Plants are so important, they're found in prayer. This is a Sanskrit mantra from the Ajurveda, which is one of the oldest sacred texts in Hinduism. O Mother Herb, you grow and work in many hundred places with thousands of varieties and extensions. You are gifted with hundreds of abilities. We pray that you make our life free from illness and disease. Over millennia, this medical knowledge in the Vedas gets written down and organized. It's passed on from teacher to student and called Ayurveda. But one thing doesn't change. Healing plants are always at the heart of the medicine. This is not alternative medicine. Here's Dominic Uyastic. He's a renowned Sanskrit and Ayurveda scholar and a professor at the University of Alberta in Canada. Today, Ayurveda is alternative medicine. But before the arise of modern medicine, Ayurveda was medicine in India, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Tibet. It was medicine. More than 2,500 years ago, a prince is born in the ancient city of Lumbini. That's in modern-day Nepal. His name is Siddhartha Gautama. He leaves home and he becomes the Buddha. After his death, his followers, who are Buddhist monks, walk along the Silk Route into Southeast Asia and China, and they're preaching his message of compassionate love. And when they can, they're also healing people using Indian medical knowledge. Ah, that is the connection with Yashomitra, right? Exactly. And healing plants become a way for Buddhists to practice compassion. India's medicine and plants travel across Asia and vice versa. Traders and occupiers bring healing systems into India too over thousands of years. It's not that there was Ayurveda 2,000 years ago and nothing in between. Doctors have been functioning all the way through history and treatises on Ayurveda have been written all the way through history and indeed have changed and adapted. And there are new medicines and new therapies and indeed new diseases New things happen to people and new identifications of disease entities get made. So Ayurveda has always been flexible and adaptive and has changed. It's been a mixture of conservatism and innovation all the way through the last 2,000 years. Today, traditional medicine remains vitally important across the world, practiced by medicine men in sub-Saharan Africa to indigenous healers near the Arctic. In India, other than Ayurveda, there's Yunani, Siddha, they have ancient roots, strong cultural bonds, and healers who treat both illnesses and a person's general well-being. And plants are at the core of these medical systems. Take my father, for example. Ever since COVID hit, he's been using plants from Siddha, and he thinks it'll help him. He makes an infusion daily called Kabasura Kudinir. It has 15 plants. Ginger, pipoli, clove. Sirukankori root. Akirakaram root. Mulli root. Kadukai skin, Atato tea leaf, Karpuravali leaf, Kottam, Sindil thunder, Siritaku, Nilevembu Kamulam, Vata Tripi root, Korai Kurangal.
Chapter 2 Plants as Drivers of Empire In the Middle Ages, Europeans are craving spices to preserve their food, to treat diseases. When the Duke of Bavaria, George the Rich, marries Jadwiga of Poland in 1475, they have a humongous wedding feast. And to flavor it, they order hundreds of pounds each of pepper, ginger, saffron, cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg. The spices are all from the East, and they're more expensive than the meat. That's because Europeans don't know the sea route to the Indies. Only Arab merchants know it, and they're not going to tell them. So the Arabs bring the goods to Venice and Genoa, which supply the rest of Europe at sky-high prices. The Portuguese desperately want to control the spice trade, and plants really drive their empire. So the Portuguese begin looking for a sea route to India. The explorer Vasco da Gama takes the help of an Arab Omani sailor, Ahmed bin Majid, to find the route. The ship arrives in Calicut on India's southwest coast on May 21, 1498. It's a grand reception. The ruler, that's the Zamorin of Calicut, famed across trading ports around the Indian Ocean world, welcomes the foreigners. Over the next hundred years, ships sail between Calicut and Lisbon. The Portuguese are enthralled with India's immense wealth, its exotic animals and birds. King Manuel of Portugal commissions 26 tapestries for his palace. They show cheetahs, peacocks, camels. One even shows a ship from India unloading a unicorn. A unicorn? Yeah. Europeans think India has unicorns with magical healing powers. But back in India, the Portuguese are falling sick. Listen to this description by one trader. Quote, they have many continual fevers, which are burning, and consume men's bodies with extreme heat, whereby within four or five days they are either fallen or dead. The Portuguese believe Indians have remedies. One physician is the first to really tap into this knowledge. Uh, who is this? His name is Garcia de Horta. You have to listen to his story. It's really fascinating. Okay. So this happens in the 16th century. The Portuguese Inquisition is going on, and the king and the Catholic Church are ruthless, especially against new Christians. New Christians? That's people who have been forced to convert from Judaism to Catholicism, right? Exactly. And the Ortha is a new Christian. He's a doctor, and in 1534, he decides to migrate to Portugal's first colony in Asia, the Scoa. And once there, he realizes that Indians have valuable medical knowledge. So sometimes he's paying local healers for the information, and sometimes he's trading for it with his knowledge of European medicine. He collects all this material, and in 1563, he publishes the first European book on Indian medicine, 59 chapters covering about 200 medicinal plants. The Orthas book is a hit in Europe. It's copied into other medical texts, and by copied, I mean plagiarized. <laughs> That's not good. So uh, what happens to Deorta eventually? Well, Deorta has an amazing career. He performs the first recorded autopsy in India. That's on a cholera patient. He's also the first European to describe the symptoms of cholera, and he includes that in his book. But his life has a rather sad postscript. Deorta dies in Goa in 1568. And then the Inquisition catches up with his family. The authorities burn his sister, Katharina, at the stake in Lisbon for being a secret Jew. 
And they really must have been outraged at Deortha. They convict him after his death, and they take out his corpse, and they burn it. And then they throw those ashes into the Mandavi River in Goa. That's horrible. And if that's not terrible enough, most of his home and his library is burned as well, which means most copies of his book are burned up, and it's now very rare. The hunger for India's spices and healing plants continues into the 17th century. In 1678, the Dutch governor of Malabar, Hendrik van Reed, publishes the Hortus Malabaricus, the Garden of Malabar. It is the most exhaustive catalogue of Indian botanical medicine, 742 plants from the southwest coast. Van Reed hires artists, a Latin translator, and many Indians. We know the most about one man, Iti Achudan. He's an Irva. Iruvas generally do farm labor, although some, like Achidan, also practiced Ayurveda. Itti Achudan's family has been practicing medicine for 2,000 years. Irava are considered outcasts. But this family has gained stature. Achudan is known as the Kolatta Vedyan and is the most famous physician on the Malabar coast. For Governor Hendrik van Reed, caste doesn't matter. He needs a local expert who will tell him everything about the glorious plants here. Their names, their uses. He first asks the Brahmins, but they don't have much local knowledge. Van Reed then invites the Kolatta Vedyan to Cochin Fort and requests his help. And Achudan agrees to collaborate. They spent long hours over the years walking, climbing, in the fields, the forests. Dozens of helpers collect specimens of trees, shrubs, herbs, climbers and seed-producing plants. At the end, Wandreed asks Achudan to pen a testimonial in the hottest Malabaricus. Achudan writes, that he is from the Kolatta family of Vedyas and his contribution is from his own practical experience and his family's manuscripts. Those precious manuscripts, written on fragile palm leaves, centuries of accumulated botanical knowledge. Almost 300 years later, in 1963, Two researchers visit Achudan's ancestral property. One is K.S. Manilal, a botanist who is translating the Hortus into English. The other is a researcher from the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. What they hear is heartbreaking. Achudan's descendants have lost millennia of knowledge, quite literally. About seven years before the researchers' visit, the manuscripts were either destroyed or thrown out. That makes the Hortus Malabaricus the only record of this family's legacy. With the Hortus, we can see how Indian plants are slowly becoming something more than just tools to heal people. Europeans are buying knowledge from Indians, and they're taking it to Europe. In the process, that knowledge is being divorced from the framework of traditional medicine, and it's being separated from India. Chapter 3. Plants as Commodities 
After the 1600s, the colonizers go one step further. They turn plants into commodities. They set up a global pipeline to move plant specimens to Europe. Green gold, that's what they call plants. They become a big part of how empires make money. And it starts off with a hefty dose of appropriation. Is that a fancy way of saying stealing? <laughs> sort of. That's one way to look at it. Or maybe like taking knowledge and adapting it for their own use. Let me give you an example. In the 1800s, cholera kills millions of people in India. And the British are ruling at this time. And their doctors learn from the Indian healers and they prescribe a concoction. It has black pepper, calomel, which is a mineral, ginger, and asafoetida. And it's all mixed with opium or brandy or arak, which is the local alcoholic drink. It's quite popular because the ingredients are so familiar. British doctors often go to Indian markets or the bazaars to gather plant specimens. Let's tag along with Samuel Brown. He's a surgeon in Madras Presidency in British India in the 17th century. We've been reading up about him, and here's what we think he might have experienced during a visit to a bazaar in 1675. I still remember the first time I walked through the bazaar. I couldn't get past the smells. Pungent, sweet, musty, spicy, rotten. They all seemed suspended in the hot, humid air. After a month of visiting almost daily, I noticed the smells less. But what still bothers me is the stink from the animals. Fortunately, that section of the bazaar is far from the shops selling herbs. And anyway, my assistant, the Tamil Vaidya, has found a different entrance far away from the animals. He accompanies me on every visit. The market is always crowded. The merchants shout over one another. I have the best black pepper. One always yells. But the Vaidya whispers in my ear that his pepper is subpar. He introduces me to three or four traders he trusts. These men procure plants from outside Madras. With his help, I learn the Tamil names, their applications and how to prepare them. I take the plants home and dry them. Many are used to treat fever. I also have remedies for smallpox, dysentery and poisoning. I buy in bulk. Some are for my own practice, but most are for my colleague in London. I've already sent him hundreds of dried plants. So Brown's assistant, who is that? Yeah, we don't really know who that is. He's a local Vaidya, and Brown never credits him in his writings. Okay, and what about that colleague in London he sends stuff to? Well, that person we do know. His name is James Pettiver. And around 1685, he opens an apothecary. That's like a pharmacy under the sign of the White Cross in Aldersgate, in London. The address is infamous. Merchants, physicians, planters, ship's captains, and other contacts around the world send him specimens there. They're sending plants, dried seeds, saplings, seashells, even animal skins. He's learning their medicinal properties and contributing that to the Royal Society, which is Britain's National Academy of Sciences. So he's as much a druggist who is preparing and selling these drugs? That's Prathik Chakraborty, a professor at the Centre for History of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Manchester in the UK. He studies the history of Indian medicine. But it's also very much 
an important part of the royal society because he's not only selling the drugs, but he's also walking into the royal society and telling them, look, I have found this new cure and what kind of new cures are being experimented upon in the whole world and I'm presenting to them as a new knowledge. So one part of his role is the commerce and the bringing of items of drugs and trade. The other is the knowledge that he brings to the royal society. So science and trade are linked. Here's Pettiver writing in a journal of the Royal Society about a route from the East that he finds useful for epileptic and convulsive diseases. He writes, and I'm going to paraphrase here because it's in Old English, we need to understand such medicines that we can grow them and supply them to poor people at cheaper prices. And that way, us merchants can also make a profit by trading in a new commodity. Around this time, the British set up a global supply chain for the green trade. They established botanical gardens in their colonies. These are factories for exporting plants in St. Vincent in the West Indies, Singapore, Cape Town, Sydney, Kandy in Sri Lanka, and the first in India is the Royal Botanic Garden set up in 1787 in Calcutta. The Calcutta Garden becomes the largest supplier of tropical plants to British colonies and to gardens around the world. And there's actually another interesting story here. The Calcutta Garden is run by Dr. William Roxburgh, and he commissions a series of intricate miniature paintings of plants. Oh, how many drawings are we talking about? More than 2,500, and these are stunning. Drawings and watercolors show the tiniest detail. And they aren't just art, they're scientific documents because they're scribbles and annotations on the margins by botanists Mm. over two centuries. And do we know who drew them? Yeah, sort of. We know that they're two Indian artists, but they don't sign the art and Roxburgh never records their names. But we do know how much they're paid since Roxburgh keeps exact notes on that. Wait, that's weird. He doesn't record their names, but he (laughs) records how much he's paying them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they get three rupees per painting. Yikes, that's kind of low. And Roxborough, what's he getting paid? Uh, 1,500 rupees a month. Chapter 4, Agents of Conquest. We've been talking about plants as healers, as drivers of empire, as commodities. In the 19th century, they become agents of conquest, not of territory, but of economic systems. With advances in chemistry, European pharmacists start transforming plants. They convert them into medicine, pills. The first intentional drug is morphine in 1804. A German apothecary's assistant isolates it from opium. About 20 years later, the pharmaceutical company Merck begins selling it. And a major market for all these new drugs are the colonies. How does that happen? I mean, I know that one of the biggest opium-growing regions in the world is the Indian subcontinent. So how did they come to sell medicines back to the same place they came from? Yeah, it's a really gradual process. So in the case of the British, it takes a century and a half. From the 1700 onwards, Europeans project themselves as having a superior knowledge system. So the Brits bring their hospitals and their forms of medicine to their colonies, paving the way for sales of their drugs. I mean, don't get me wrong, the drugs work and they save lives. But it's also a business. 
Here again is Pratik on how their hospitals in India changed their treatment for feverish patients. If they had intermittent fevers earlier, they used at least 10 varieties of herbs or barks of plants that the local doctors or local experts suggested. Once they had quinine as a biochemical extract from the chinchona bark, they prescribed quinine as the only form of medicine. The use of these types of medicine snowballs. Increasingly in these hospitals, they started using what is known as Western medicine. Large-scale importation of Western drugs started and Western medical companies made huge profits selling and sending these products to the colonies. So one of the reasons why we had a huge biomedical revolution of large-scale medical pharmaceutical companies developing in Europe, Germany, Britain in the 19th century. And today, so many of our drugs come from tropical medicinal plants. To give you a sense of scale, here are some numbers. More than 7,000. That's the number of species of healing plants on the subcontinent. 25%. A fraction of modern medicines derived from plants all over the world. Here's Animas Budich. She's a cell and molecular biologist who left her science lab at Stanford to explore traditional medical knowledge systems in India. Some of the major drugs that we use today, at least 50 of them, starting with aspirin, Cody, Nipakak, you know, and the malaria drug, artemisinin, and all have come from plant medicines which belong to ancient cultures. She says a lot of tropical plants have healing properties because of the weather. They synthesize small molecules that are probably intended for repelling insects or for attracting bees or, or for various reasons. Tropical plants are very powerful and they make these small compounds for their own purposes. But of course, it turns out what it does to insects or to bees or whatever also has properties in the human physiology. And so that is why tropical plants have been the source of many, many medicines that are in use today. We've seen that plants have so many avatars. They are healers, of course, but they have also driven empires. They've been traded as commodities, and they have fueled the rise of the modern pharmaceutical industry around the world. Somehow, to me, this sort of stinks, this uh, appropriation of knowledge, I'd call it. Well, we do have life-saving drugs as a result. Here's Dominic Vujastic. We met him before. The ability to synthesize a drug chemically so that you don't have to just sort of squeeze it, squeeze the juice out of a tree, but you can actually make it in using an industrial process. That has made important medicines like aspirin available to everybody in the world. One wouldn't want to lose that process. But I'd also argue that something priceless is lost when plants become pills. The knowledge of traditional healers who collect plants in very specific ways and deploy them to treat a person holistically not just their body or disease, but their way of living. Healers like Ashtavaidin Chirattamon Narayanamus. Some years ago, Anama met him in Kerala and he took her into his garden. He showed me three different plants side by side and he plucked leaves from three of them and he said to me, smell them. And I did. Well, one of them had a very different smell than the other two. And he said, you know, this is the medicine. The other two are related plants, but are not medicines. So the accuracy of the identification of traditional medicine, and he also told me that there are medicines that have to be 
plot, you know, collected at a certain time. What amazing knowledge about plants that only a healer would have. This is the complexity we stand to lose. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Rose Abraham. And I'm Gayatri Vaidinathan. Next time on Scrolls and Leaves, what does a shipwreck off the coast of Sri Lanka have to do with science fiction master Arthur C. Clarke? Tune in next time to find out. Our sound designer is Nikhil Nagaraj. The storyteller is Sumit Kumar. You were listening to Scrolls and Leaves in collaboration with the archives at the National Center for Biological Sciences. Our thanks to David Arnold, Pratik Chakraborty, Harirama Murthiji, Sanjeev Jain, Animas Pudic, Dominic Wiastic, and Ines Zhupanov. Thanks to our episode supporters, India Bioscience, DBT Welcome Trust India Alliance, and Deepa Agashe of NCBS. For more information and past episodes, visit scrollsandleaves.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at scrollsleaves, Instagram at scrollsandleaves, or like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.